We'll be looking and spending the most of our time in 12 through 17 this morning. As we remember, we are traveling through the book of Revelation. We have seen that John is the author of Revelation. He's written this book while he's on the island of Patmos. He's been banished there for uh, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he is uh, partnering in the sense of he as well as going through the challenges of tribulation, the challenges of persecution, uh, as the believers in that day are. So he's on the island of Patmos. He's a partner in these things. He's writing to the seven churches. He'll see a vision of Jesus uh, and he hears from Jesus. So he's writing to these seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And these are what Jesus tells John to do. I want you to write these things to these churches and send it to them. And so John does. He writes what he sees. He writes what he hears. And he sends, he's sending these off to the seven churches that he's been instructed to. This vision of Jesus that he sees clothed with a white, a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, it said, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. He says to John, as John in recognition of seeing Jesus just falls to his feet as though dead. And Jesus says to him, fear not, don't fear. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So write these things. And what he's going to write is the things that you have seen. Write those that are. And then to write the things that will take place after this. And so that's what we have as an as a outline for the book of Revelation. We've moved into chapter 2. And we see that the, the Lord knows what's going on in these churches. In each of these churches, the phrase, I know what's going on. I know what you are going through. And so the Lord gives to John, as he reveals the book of Revelation, a letter to each of these seven churches, which is to be sent out or possibly taken back to these churches if there are messengers that are there to, to bring those letters to the churches uh, as John gets these letters ready. The letter to Ephesus, it praises them for the many good things that they're doing. There are many good things that are happening in Ephesus. But then he says, you have one dire fault. One thing that you've got to be very, very careful of here, you've lost your first love. You've lost that love and not that loving feeling. We're talking about you've lost the love for Jesus that you had at the beginning. Right? You've lost that. And, and you need to remember where you've fallen. You need to repent. You need to return to this first love. A love for God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love one another as Christ loves the church. We're to love each other. We're to love the Lord our God. Love is something that 
was missing in the church of Ephesus. We have the churches here, Ephesus at the bottom here. And the threat was, if you do not repent, I will remove that lampstand. Right? If you picture this is the, the dark communities in which they live, it was a, it was a dark time. Idol worship, there, there was many things happening in these cities. And to have a dark city's light removed leaves them totally in the dark. There's no light of witness for Jesus. And so that threat was there. And then we saw Smyrna. Smyrna, there's no condemnation. There's nothing that is a challenge to this church. Smyrna was a faithful church. Smyrna was a persecuted church. Chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation, your poverty, I know the slander by those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. I know that you're going to suffer and that the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. You'll be tested. You'll have a tribulation for ten days. But do not fear. Don't fear. And be faithful. Those are the two commands given that we looked at last week. Don't fear and be faithful. In the midst of their tribulation, their trying times, their suffering for the Lord, don't fear and be faithful. Those are the things that come off here in chapter 2 with Ephesus and Smyrna. So that was a faithful church. Right? Not a word about any flaw there. They were persecuted. They were persecuted and being imprisoned. They were persecuted and put to death. They're Pastor, which will come a little bit later, is Polycorp, and he will be executed. He'll be burned at the stake. That won't work. They'll actually literally have to spear him uh, to death. He was faithful, and that's the, that kind of defines Smyrna, the faithfulness to Jesus. Now we're going to turn to Pergamum. Pergamum, the Lord has some things to say, some good and some not so good things, a challenge. And yet, it's interesting because I think Pergamum really defines our theme for this morning. Finding hope in a culture of compromise. No familiarity to our culture today whatsoever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray as we open up Your Word here this morning, we're looking at this letter to a church in Pergamum. Or Pergamus. It was a church, Lord, that was there at that time, going through some real difficult things and some challenges, you, you praised them and then you also challenged them. And this morning, we want to listen to what that is. And we want to know, Lord, how does this apply to our lives? We will see this church and we will see what's happening and your accommodation and, and then your challenge. But Lord... Does this apply to us today? Are we finding that we too could be in a similar culture here today and a similar challenge to our own lives and to our own uh, church gathering? So I just pray that You would speak to us through Your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 12 of chapter 2. And the angel of the church at Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, 
Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamum, according to the Enduring Word commentary, Pergamus or Pergamum. Some of your translations say Pergamus. That's fine. It's It's the same. This here was a political capital of the Roman province in Asia. When John wrote, Pergamus had been the capital of the region. Right? It, was, it was designated that capital in the beginning. Uh, it was transferred over to Ephesus because Pergamum is different than Ephesus in that it's not on the coast. It's inland more. So it's not a coastal city. And so Ephesus made more sense to become the capital once it became a part of that Roman Empire. But at one time, Pergamus was the capital of that region for over 300 years. The city was a noted center for culture, education. It had one of the greatest libraries in the ancient world with more than 200,000 volumes in that library. Now that library will be uh, shipped off to Egypt as a kind of love gift eventually. But that, uh, at that point, we have a great library, over 200,000 volumes. Pergamus was also an extremely religious city in the sense that it had temples to the Greek and Roman gods, many of them. Dionysus, Athena, Demeter, Zeus. And it also had three temples dedicated to the emperor worship. There was the emperor worship that we saw in Ephesus, Smyrna, and now we also see this found here in Pergamum. Fifty years before Smyrna won the honor of building the first temple to Tiberius, which is the emperor worship, the city of uh, Pergamus won the right to build the first temple of worship to Caesar Augustus in that province. This city was especially known as a city of worship to the deity Asclepius. You now, if you think of that word for a moment, Escapulus represented what was represented by a serpent on a uh, post or a cross, but mostly a post. And it was there that it was a, had a famous temple. It also had a school of medicine. So this was to the goddess of healing. Right? The god of healing was a part of this culture. Famous temple. Famous part. Those from... Many places would come here that had no other alternative for their problem. And they would come to this temple and they would try to find healing there to be restored and to be healed. Uh, They had many different rooms 
And then the glass on the top of that would be where the priests would be and they would be chanting down so that they would help that individual find healing. They even taught. They had schools of medicine there. And sufferers were allowed to spend nights in darkness in the temple. And the temple there had snakes. They weren't poisonous snakes, but they were snakes. And so in the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these uh, harmless snakes. Not one of the ones in Indiana Jones. These are harmless snakes as it glided over the ground where they lay. And the touch of that snake, it was said, was, would hold a touch of the God Himself. And the touch was held to, to bring health and healing to that individual. And this is what it is. Asclepius is the deity of medicine. It comes from the word lepus, which really is the root word for where we get scapel. And the snake on the post still is a symbol of healing and health. And this is what was worshipped here. And this is Pergamos. This is where these people live. This is the culture in which they are a part of. There are many gods and worship to Caesar and a a desire for healing in their bodies. This is the culture in which they were in. Then we see Jesus. Remember that we have the words of Jesus, the words of Him who, and in each case, referred back to Revelation chapter 1. And gave us a glimpse into who Jesus was. That's why I went through the vision that John has. And we see here the words of Him who has a sharp two-edged sword. The sharp two-edged sword is two things. It's one of judgment. And it divides. Right? It divides the word of truth, we're told, in Timothy. John MacArthur says, but this one, this one description of Jesus... The description that he has here is not an encouraging one. Right? This one here is part of the description back in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, as are the other statements of the introduction. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. So now if You got a letter from the Lord, and it says, this is his words, Dear Bill, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, that's a fierce introduction. What is that sharp two-edged sword? We see it again in chapter 19. So we will get to chapter 19 eventually. And in chapter 19, verse 15, from his mouth, comes a sharp sword. And this is speaking of Christ's return. Right? He's called the faithful one. The faithful and true. It's the Word of God. From His mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword so that with it He may strike down the nations. This is a weapon. This sword is a weapon. This is not a promising introduction. Here, the one who wields a deadly weapon, this is not a positive, it's threatening, it's terrifying. It's actually a terrifying introduction to this church from their letter here. So it's not encouraging. It's not necessarily comforting. The significance in Christ's title can be seen in the doctrinal errors of the Balaamites. 
and the Nicolaitans, which are being promoted. They are being promoted by some in the church. Right? Some in the church are promoting these things in Pergamum. So these doctrinal errors are judged by the teaching of the Word of God. How do we judge error? Oh, I think. Well, that would be a great cultural thing to say. And that's very predominant. But we don't. How we judge doctrinal truth is from the Word of God. Right? What God says. That is our defense to anything that comes our way as far as doctrine. Doctrine's a belief, right? That we have in who God is and what God says and what God does. How do I judge that? Well, the best way to judge it is to say, in the King James, thus says the Lord. Right? The Lord says. God says. That is where we hinge. That's where we bank. That's where we stand upon the rock. It's on His Word. And the sharp two-edged sword is what divides truth and error. And so this is what Jesus is coming to. He's, he's got a sharp two-edged sword. And this is what He's going to use to, to divide the truth here. The sharp two-edged sword reminds us of a passage in Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, to the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Wow. So I can't even trust my heart. The Word of the Lord pierces through to to show and demonstrate the desires of my heart even. That's what the Word of God does. And that's how it's used here. The commendation. I know. I know where you dwell. I know where you live. Right? He knows. Does Jesus know where we live today? Oh, Jesus, you just don't understand today. You lived 2,000 plus years ago. How could you understand our culture today? He knows. That's encouraging. He knows what we go through. He knows what our challenges are. He knew them. I know where you dwell. Where do they dwell? Fascinating to think about for a minute. Where do they dwell? Where Satan's throne is. Just picture for a moment. I'm living where Satan's throne is. Where he is acting as he thinks is king. That's where I'm living. In the midst of all of these gods and all of these worship procedures and ceremonies and sacrifices. Ultimately, do you know who they're worshiping? Satan. He's behind it all. He's behind our culture and what's taking place. Satan. It's his throne. That's where he's living. We went from the synagogue of Satan, which was with the Jews in Ephesus, to, or in Smyrna, to now we go to the throne of Satan in the Gentiles. Again, John MacArthur says, we know this, there was an altar there to Zeus that dominated the, the whole area. In fact, that altar was the largest altar in that ancient time. It was massive. It was like a horse. He says it was like a huge court 
in a horseshoe form. It was 120 by 112 feet. It had an altar that actually, uh, that altar in the middle was 18 feet high. And at the base, there was over about 446 feet around that horseshoe. And it had a whole bunch of carved uh, artwork depicting battles and gods and giants. I mean, this was a, a massive altar. And you can imagine the smoke of that altar that would just continually rise day and night. And this is to the god Zeus. It was a, a massive structure. But notice, my. So I know that this is where you dwell. It's where Satan's throne is. Yet, in the midst of that culture, you hold fast my name. This word hold, I mean, you grab on to. You're holding fast. And who am I holding fast to? His name. Jesus Christ. They're holding fast to His name. And you did not deny my faith. What a compliment. Even in the days of Antipas, who was my faithful witness, who was killed among you. That's all we know about Antipas. We don't know how he was killed or what took place, but he was a faithful witness and he was executed for being faithful, not denying, holding fast to the name of Jesus because if you held fast to the name of Jesus, you would suffer those consequences. So you notice the mys in this verse. You hold fast to my name. You do not deny my faith in, in the days of. And you are my witness. My faithful one. It's a personal possession of His. Fellow believer, if you are in Christ, you are His possession. He's your... You're His. Not only is He yours, and we think of it that way, oh, I, I call Him one of me, but he, I am His. What an encouraging note to be a part of. It's personal. The truth is His. The people are His. The witnesses are His. He is my witness. That's the word martus, from which we get martyr. But actually, it started out as a meaning for witness. It really means, martyrs means witness. But because so many Christians were being killed for their witness, the term became synonymous with martyr. And that's how we get martyr. It was used of Stephen in Acts 22, verse 20. And so this is a marvelous commendation to these people. I mean... It's a tough place to live in a compromising culture. And then we could say, Amen. That's where we live. In that compromising culture. And it is tough. And it will get even tougher in our culture. An important note is that the early Christians were not being persecuted for their faith. Did I get your attention? The early Christians weren't being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. Hmm. Now, 
the early Christians were being persecuted for their exclusive faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know the difference, right? If you were to say, I'm a Christian today, but live in any way like the world or accept whatever everybody else is doing, you really have no problem. But if Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life, if Jesus' words dictate how we live and what we believe, then we are going to have a problem in our culture. And that's what they faced. They weren't being persecuted just because they believed in Jesus. They were being persecuted because that's exclusively who they believed in. They're not going to worship the other gods. They're not going to give Caesar recognition. Jesus Christ, kurios in Greek. So in other words, Jesus Christ is Lord, is the word. He is Lord. Isus Christos Yehospod. Close? Jesus Christ is Lord. It, I'm not a linguist. I do apologize. But I think it's close. Jesus Christ is uh, Herr. Herr in German. Is that it? H-E-R-R? Jesus Christ is Herr. Right? In German. Jesus Christ. Caballero. Caballero. Edgar. Lord. Jesus Christ is Her. Dutch. Close? Here. I can't roll my R's. And Mary Gale's over there, and Hendrika and Mike, you guys could. Whatever language we proclaim, Jesus Christ is Lord. Not our government, not our culture, not the world view. It's Jesus Christ. And what accommodation that is. These people were praised for it. Unfortunately, there's a but. Not like Smyrna. Smyrna was great, but here's a but. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. I have a few things against you. Some of you, right? Some there, some have been holding to. We got that same word. Remember, they're holding to my name. Now there's some though, however, that are holding to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. You'd have to look back, and we went through this in Joshua to Numbers chapter 22 to 25, and you find the story here of Balak who wants to overcome Israel because Israel's doing really well with the Lord's uh, working through them and they're conquering many nations. And so Balak hires Balaam. This is a prophet. It wasn't a good prophet, but this was a prophet that he knew had a voice to speak. And so he hires him. And Balaam's going to go and he's going to curse Israel as they're coming for battle. And you can read the story. Obviously, this is the story of on his way there where the donkey right sees the angel and begins to talk back to Balaam. So Balaam continues to go. And Balaam is unable to curse Israel. God won't let him. You're not cursing Israel. Three times he attempts to do this. Over and over again, he cannot do it. So Balaam, unable to curse the people directly, comes up with a plan. Ah, you know what, Balak? Here's what you do. You send in the Moabite women. 
right? I don't know if they were, you know, seductively dressed, not dressed. I have no idea. But what you're going to do is send them in and this is going to distract the Israeli soldiers. uh, So much so that these probably guys have been away from home. They're in battle, right? That they're going to fall into this sexual immorality with them. Not only do they fall into the sexual immorality, but what takes place is through this, those women lure in these men to begin to worship the idols. Right? They begin to worship. They begin to sacrifice to the gods. They begin to assimilate into the culture. They begin to compromise. And this tactic worked well. Balaam knew. This is what you do. You just lure them into the culture. And they will fall for this. And that's what it's called. A stumbling block is connected with the idolatry. And then they began to eat the things sacrificed to idols. And they began to participate in the sexual immorality of the idol worship. If this church in Pergamos had those who did the hold to the doctrine of Balaam, it showed that they had tendencies towards both idolatry and immorality. They, they were saying it's okay. This is okay to participate in. You can be a Christian and do this. This is okay. They're holding to this. Numbers 25, 1-3 says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. That's the god that would have been a part of that. But it doesn't stop there. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. What does the Lord hate most? Our compromise. Mm. His anger burned. Inopian is a word before or within the sight of. And so these people saw in the sight of and they began to see this. They compromised their standards, number one, it's up there. They entertained what was sin. Right? They, they ate what they were not supposed to eat. They accommodated what God hates. Right? They started to bow down to other gods. What is the very first commandment given to the people of Israel and to us? You worship the Lord your God only. Do not have any other gods before you. And so they accommodated what God hates. They entered into a moral defilement. Israel, it says, joined Baal of Pure. And the result was God's judgment, His anger, the anger of the Lord kindled against them. And the end result is this that the Israel, on their own, through compromising, through affirming sin, through entertaining sin, through accommodating sin, through acting on sin, cursed themselves. Balaam cannot curse Israel. So Israel cursed themselves. That's the end result. Sexual immorality marked the whole culture in this ancient Roman world. It was simply taken for granted. The people who lived by biblical standards of purity was considered strange. 
You, you catch this? Sexual immorality marked the culture. Let's just watch our TV. Let's just watch shows. Let's just see. You know, we're very similar. Yep, the sexual immorality, it, it, it infiltrated that whole culture. And it was taken for granted that if you were a person who lived by biblical standards and purity, you were considered strange. To paraphrase the Roman statesman uh, Ciro, he cited in Barclay's commentary, if there is anyone who thinks that young men should not be allowed to love many women, he is extremely severe. Right? You'd be looked at as strange. What do you mean? This is the culture. Some there who hold. Again, the same word. It is a plural present tense. The word hold means a powerful grip on. And it means a refusal to let go. Right? You refuse to let go. How do you catch a monkey? Do you know how they catch monkeys? They get a coconut. They carve a hole in it, just big enough for the monkey's paw, and they put a peanut in it. Think for a moment, what does this do? The monkey wants the peanut. So it puts its hand in, grabs the peanut, but can't get its hand back out. And won't let go. This is the word. You will not let... There's nothing I can do to let go. What is that in our life that we may have that we will not let go of? Makes you think for a moment, doesn't it? What will I not release? What is that thing that I've got such a hold on? And this is it. So also, that hold is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know who the Nicolaitans really are. It could be similar to the teaching of Balaam in its regard to idolatry and sexual immorality. It could have been a false doctrine initiated by a group of followers of Nicholas. There was a Nicholas as a follower of the Lord who they say may have deviated and led astray. It could come from the breakdown of the Greek word which boils down to victory over laity. It's a victory over is where we get the word Nike. The swoosh. This is what it is. Victory. right? Victory over something. And laos, which means lording over or subduing people. But whatever the teaching of the Nicolaitans, it was this. It was conquering God's people. It was leading them to compromise. And it was leaving them powerless, exposing them to something God hates. We saw that already in Ephesus. God hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So whatever that was, it was something so uh, horrible that Jesus hated it. He found it repulsive. He found it objectable and repugnant. We have chosen for this year the holiness of God as our theme for this year. To focus on that and to continue to have that before us, the holiness of God And I think that's a great theme to have. And here we see the holiness of God at work. God is absolutely holy in His character, in His will, in His actions, in so much that He cannot even tolerate sin. Sin is an outward disease. An inward disease, sorry. 
It's an inward cancer. It's an inward defilement that came as a result of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. His disobedience to what God had asked. So through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. God hates sin. 1 Corinthians 6.11 It outlines just before this all of these areas of, of sin and that God hates them. All of these areas. You read through, there's a number of them, but there's a wonderful part in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God, but you. See, God didn't leave us without hope. He didn't leave us with just the results of what Adam had done and that sin would be for us to carry and, and, and the disease within would be something that we would stand before God with. He left us with hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. There is hope in Jesus. His sacrifice on the cross transforms us. It washes us. It sanctifies us. Justifies us. Justified is a legal term. It means to declare innocent. What wonderful news that... You can be justified by faith in Christ. I can be declared righteous. That's wonderful news. God didn't leave us without hope. In Smyrna, we found that the outward attacks of tribulation were there. That there was slander from the Jews. There was prison. There's testing. There's even death. Outwardly. All that pressure. Remember, we looked at those weights of pressure that were upon them. Here in Pergamum, we find it's the inward attack of the Christian to syncretism. This seems to be a, a kind of current word. You know what syncretism is? Right? Companies synchronize together because they find this common ground and they work together. Syncretism. Working together. There's accommodation and an affirmation of sin. And there's a moral slide into compromise. That's what we're facing here in Pergamum. It's inward battle. It's an inward struggle. The first century Christians were immersed in a culture that had imagery like crazy, idol worship, emperor worship, sexuality and sin galore. That's where they lived. That's what they struggled with. That's what they were up against. Someone said it's too little church in Pergamum. Too much Pergamum in the church. Too little church in our culture. Too much culture in our church. That's what he's saying. Right? So the accommodation that they had, accommodation to the worldview does more damage to the Gospel. The good news of Christ is damaged by accommodation. Affirming sin does damage to the transformational Gospel message. So beware the slippery slope of compromise. But we can do this. There's a call to repent. Right? There's a call to repentance. The idea is to live a life of repentance. You notice that it comes up in each letter, repent. Repent, repent. We repent 
when we turn to Jesus for the very first time in our sin and we repent from it and we turn and ask for the forgiveness and we want Jesus to come and to be a part of our lives. There's that new birth, that being born again. There's repentance. But don't forget, from there on, we live a life of repentance. We need to continually repent. Not that it has bearing on my state with the Lord that way as secure as I am in Christ, but it does definitely impact my walk with Him and my talk with Him and my living with Him and for Him. I live a life of continual repentance from these things that I've allowed to creep in or these attitudes or these actions. We are told to examine ourselves with the Word of God. To walk in the Spirit And to live a daily life of confession and repentance. If we do not, judgment will fall. If they do not, judgment will fall. It refers back to the description of who Jesus is. And some translations say, fight against. The word here is war. Jesus will make war. He'll come and make war against. So the war is translated appropriately. This is an all-out war for our soul. He cares so much about our soul that He's willing to come with that two-edged sword. So he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, remember this is plural. In each case, it says to the churches, which means each of these letters relates to the churches. It's a letter too. But it is for all. And it is for you and for I today. To him that's the overcomer. There's a continual act of conquering going on here. Master your sport is a conquering word. Uh, And reign supreme. Again, it's the same word for Nike. It's the victory that we have. The overcomer. right? The one who conquers. Here's what we are given. Some of the hidden manna. You remember the manna from the Old Testament? Right? God's perfect provision. Israel's wandering in the desert. A very difficult time. It's a journey that they're on to their destination in the promised land. Rick Werner says that manna that rained down from heaven in one day could feed them for 2,000 years. Now you recall, they were told to take enough manna for that day. So over and over, every day, for over 40 years, that's what rained down from heaven. You see, when God provides, God provides. He's not limited to anything. Right? For, two, for, for that many to be fed. You know, talk about abundance. So now they're instructed just to take enough for that day. Right? And this would happen day after day, year after year for 40 years. Jesus says, I will supernaturally sustain you through the journey as you live without compromise. We can live without compromise because Jesus will sustain us through. Feast on Him, on the Word of God. Right, It will get us through. There's also another thing you will receive and that's a, a white stone. You will receive a white stone with a new name. This has some 
debatable issues, but really, back in that culture, the white stone in legal terms represented the same thing as justified. You're declared innocent. A white stone in law would hold up and say, there, you're, you're, you're innocent of that. And so it's a declaration of this. It's a new name we're given. You will see that again in Revelation. We're given a new name that no one knows but Jesus. The name is something you can look through Scripture. Jesus changes people's names. Jesus has a lot to say. God has a lot to say about names, the importance of that. And you can read through that. And this is also referring back to some of that. The enduring word commentary, I will give him a white stone. In the ancient world, the use of a white stone had many associations. A white stone could be a ticket to a banquet, a sign of friendship, evidence of having been counted, or as a sign of acquittal in the court of law. Jesus may have any one of these meanings in mind, or all of them. The very least, we know that He has assured us of blessing. Revelation 19, 6-10. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters and the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are you if you are invited to His supper, to His feast. We are blessed. Jesus invites the overcomer to His feast and in His presence by invitation. You get the invitation that has your name on it? It does something, kind of does go like, oh, I got, I got something with my name invited to it. This is what Jesus does. You see, there's hope found in Revelation 2, 12-17. A hope that sustains us. A hope of His presence and His power. And a hope that we can stand in a culture <clears throat> of compromise without unwavering to our faithfulness for Him. Heavenly Father, I pray. Lord, as we consider this morning the similarities in this culture that Pergamos would have faced, although we don't see all these idols <clears throat> made of stone. <clears throat> made of stone. We don't see these idols uh, before us. There are idols surrounding us every day. We live in a society that celebrates sin. We we live in a time where. It could be easy for us as individuals or as a church to compromise what you say. To think that, oh, what does it really, you know, I can have both. But we recognize, God, we cannot. Your word divides that, the truth, even within our own hearts. 
So thank you for your word this morning and the reminder, Lord, that we need to stand on you. That we need to live out our lives in daily repentance and turning from and to, from away from and to you. Lord, because we want to be faithful. We want to hold fast like they did and be faithful to you. In Jesus' name.